Welcome everyone to One Step Forward, the podcast where we talk about issues relating to injustice in our society. I'm George Kalivas. I'm Oscar Hutero. And I'm Henry McCanks. And we're your co-hosts, helping our communities take that one step forward towards social justice. All right, so today we're going to be talking about mass incarceration and the prison system. Now, uh, this is a pretty big uh, topic to tackle, but uh, we're going to do our best here. Mm-hmm. And um, we really have to understand where all of this started. You know, prisons have been around forever, right? And um, mm-hmm. people have been getting arrested forever. You know, it's, it's, not, an, it's not a new thing. However, um, mass incarceration is no joke. And um, the unequal amount of uh, the unequal rates um, of incarceration between black people, uh, white people, uh, Hispanics, different communities, like th- there is a difference there. And that's something we're going to talk about today. Uh, but let's first understand how that disparity all got started. Um, it didn't necessarily... We're, we're going to talk about the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s. This, it didn't necessarily start then. I don't want to say that there was no racial disparity before then, because, of course, there was a lot of racial disparity yeah, before then. Exactly. Um, but I do want to emphasize that it, it was really when the war on drugs was going on during the 70s and 80s that we saw this increase in the disparity. And that's why we're focusing on it today. That's why that's our starting point for today. Um, For those uh, of you out there who are not aware about what the war on drugs was, it was essentially an a time in our history uh, during the Nixon-Reagan era, so the essentially 1970s and 1980s, where uh, there were stricter and stricter laws being implemented against the use of drugs in the United States. Before this time, a lot of these drugs were actually legal, completely legal to use, and with very little to no restriction. Uh, with time, people... Uh, the, the government uh, and those administrations in power wanted to get rid of those uh, those drugs and wanted to um, quote, uh, make it safer for people. Right? They didn't want people using them in, in, in a dangerous way because it mm-hmm. pr- promoted crime and stuff like that. So essentially, that that's where um, I believe it was Reagan's uh, "Just Say No." Uh, uh, slogan came out. Right? I'm, I'm yeah. pretty sure that it was him. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and but here's the issue. You had stricter and stricter laws that were being implemented, and people were getting arrested just for having the drugs. You know, that not only distributing, but just for having them on their person, mm-hmm. they were getting arrested, and they were getting really harsh uh, punishments as far as sentencing goes uh, for having these drugs. Um, so, what did this mean? Why is this? Why is this a start of this? Or why is this? the time where we see this increase in the racial disparity. Well, that's because during the time, 80% of crack users were black. And what does that mean? If they're essentially really cracking down on drugs, then the majority of the people that they're going to be arresting are going to be people in the black community. Now, that does not mean that there's still an unjust system. There's still something wrong with the system. You know, because what did this do? This set kind of this stigma... This, uh, let's say, um, practice of 
let me question this person a little bit further or, you know, let me just stop this person and see what they're up to. You know, that's what started this, you know, and like I mentioned, it's not, this isn't the exact time when this started. Like I said, this, Mm -hmm. this started a long time ago as well, but this is where we see a big increase on that. When we were trying to get rid of the drugs that were coming in from uh, South America and other places like that, this, that's why, Mm -hmm. you know, um, now with time, like I said, this unraveled and became what it is today. You know, police further questioning uh, black people mm-hmm. about what they're doing out in the street, you know, and that it has evolved into something that's very, very ugly today. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, I just wanted to give a little bit of context on how we saw that increase, you know. Um, and yeah, that, that's pretty much it. That's all I have on the war on drugs. I think it's a very important starting uh, point. But um, now what we're going to do is we're going to explain the prison system a little more, just mm-hmm. so that we understand what it is we're dealing with in this country in particular. George, do you have a little bit on that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So the United States has the highest prison population on the planet. Uh, as of like 2016 and like 2018, the the figures vary, but it's 1.6 million people at the lowest, up to like two and change million people in the prison system. Whether that's in private prisons or federal prisons, I'm gonna get into that. Wow, that's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it it's it's really unfathomable. Like the the statistics that I've seen are that we have about a fifth of the world population, but 25 percent of the incarcerated people are in, are incarcerated in the United States. That is crazy. That's a scary statistic. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it, it's and it says something. It, it really calls for more investigation as to why this is the case. You know. So the thing I wanted to focus in on was private prisons specifically because we know that like across the world, states are usually the ones who have this authority to be using force and then also putting people in prison and usually managing them. Right. And like, even in these public federally run prisons, they do lease, um, they do hire private contractors for like cleaning and food. But the thing that we're talking about here is completely different. This is private prisons, for-profit prisons that are corporations. So as of, um, as of 20, 2018, I believe, they had 7% of state prisoners and 18% of like people who, were, who would have been in federal prisons, uh, like maximum, maximum security, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 18% of those people were in these for-profit prisons. Let, let me go more into that. So in Arizona and New Mexico, they have some of the highest percentages of, prison, of private prisons to like federal prisons. And these are also cases where these private prisons hold three quarters of federal immigration detainees. So that's people who have, you know, crossed the border and while they're being detained, they're not being detained by the federal government. That job is being given out to private corporations. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and this is where you see, you see the issue of, um, in social media, um, I believe like a year ago and it's still like, it, these children are still there. Like people who, um, illegally crossed the border. Um, they were separated from their families and children were kept in these prisons. Like it's, it's this, they're kept in these for-profit corporation run prisons. Right. Yeah. And I think that emphasizes the, one of the big issues is like you're privatizing something that I don't think should ever be privatized in the first place. That, that's you know? definitely like 
a major concern. Yeah. That, that means you're profiting off of the suffering of, of people. Yeah. Criminal or not, people. And, and, that, and that's the thing. The, the government's argument and the, the reason that there has been this growth in this industry is that the government often doesn't want to shoulder the cost. It can cost a lot to, um, to, to basically pay for the food and housing of prison inmates. Right. So especially when certain administrations or state governments are trying to trim down on their budgets, if there is a private prison that they can turn to that can cut the cost for them, they're often going to turn to it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get more, more into that because right now it's like all three of us, like if you could see our faces, we can't really fathom it. Yeah, it's just an, yeah, it's it's a lot to take in considering how big and expansive the prison system is. Like yeah. you said, like the, those are crazy numbers, two million people, mm-hmm. you know, which I get it. We have like 300 million people or something in our country, but two million people, the rate of that compared to other countries is insane. And that's why exactly. our prison system is so expansive because of that rate, that very, very high rate. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, tell us a little bit more because this is, you know, it's, it's interesting things. It's things, though, that people, I think, have to hear. You know, it's, it's things that haven't been discussed as much as some of these other topics that we've talked about. And I'm glad we're talking about it today. So why don't you tell us some more about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, so I mentioned that Montana and New Mexico, for example, like 30% of their prison populations are in state prisons. Like, let me get these statistics out of the way that, um, of those 2 million people, um, roughly 2 million people in prison, about 120,000 are in these for-profit prisons. So, like, let, let me go deeper into the issues and the business model with these private prisons. So, fundamentally, imagine that it costs about $100 to house a prisoner. Okay. Whether it's a for-profit or just, like, the average is $100. Right. And the private prison essentially asks the federal government for a stipend. And they can ask for any amount. Like, let's say, let's say they ask for $150 right. to cover these expenses. And... The government is going to agree to that if it's less than their own costs in a federally run prison. Right, because if it costs them $200 instead of $150, they'd rather pay the private yeah. prisons $150, right? Yeah, right. So, and, and that's, that's been a frequent argument cited by state governments, the, the federal government, as to why this industry exists. Right. Um, and... This is pretty obvious, but if it costs $100 and they're being paid $150, that's, that's where the profit comes in, right? Like yeah. These, yeah. these private com- or private privin- uh, prisons, excuse me, are um, figuring out a way to make make it so uh, cheaper, mm-hmm. uh, make it so cheap for these uh, prisons to be there, and in doing so, take advantage of the government who obviously is looking for the cheapest way out. Exactly. Yeah. And something that... The adults that, that, that are listening to this should also be considering, and us, you know, like we're, we're eventually going to be like many of us are tax paying age. And if you're working, like your taxes are going to the government and right. your taxes are basically they're being given to the government to be providing public works. And part of the like the, the government gets a lot of its budget from these taxes and that profit that these for profit uh, companies are making that $50 in this example that's basically taxpayer money. Right. We're, we're subsidizing the government's ability to basically distribute prison labor. Yeah. And wow. something a little bit unrelated, but yeah. I think that's also important for us to mention is that uh, that's true. Now, a lot of us are now tax paying uh, citizens in yeah. this country. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, just a little note out there to everyone. We should know where our taxes are going. I think it's a very important thing, you know, and and you can look this stuff up, you know, like Mm -hmm. where it's going in your state, where it's going uh, country, like uh, in in this country, uh, you can figure out like the percentages of how much you're giving and where it's going to, whether it's like uh, public infrastructure or stuff like that or uh, school, uh, schools and stuff. Uh, You can find all that stuff out. And I highly recommend that you do because that way you know where it's going and you know what you want to support and what you don't want to support. And that's a great point. You know, voting is important and being involved is important. Mm -hmm. So you have to know you have to know these things in order to make the proper decisions. I'm glad you touched on that, Oscar. Right, yeah, yeah because yeah, at the end of the day, money runs this world. You know, money is what, you know... It, it, Makes the world go round. Exactly, you know? And, so and especially, like, like, when it comes back to this, these companies, when they're corporations, they do do lobbying to the government. Yeah. And, that like, that's part of why they're, they're able to still have this much influence. Like, we are citizens. We, our tax dollars also help fund the government. So, you know, we should be just as active as these private lobbies. Right, know? exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, moving on a little bit, uh, we're going to talk about over-policing and unequal sentencing. And that is uh, that is something I've heard a lot of for a long time. You know, there is, there is a racial disparity in the amount of time uh, a, a mi- someone, a minority, you know, let's say a black man has to serve in prison compared to um, a white person for the same crime. Mm-hmm. So a black person will have to serve more time compared to that white person for the same crime. Um, and I mean, that, that's just as unequal as it gets. And it's, it's very clear, you know, like it's not hidden. It's not subtle. Like a lot of these laws that we've talked about before um, and in our very first episode, like, you know, a lot of these systems and policies put in place, like they were in some sort of way subtle, or at least at the time they seemed subtle, right? Now they're obvious to us. But um, this is not subtle at all. Like it's yeah. pretty obvious, you know. Uh, let's say I rob a store and then some other random white person robs a store and steals the exact same things. I will serve three years in prison and that person will serve less time or might not not even serve time, you know, might be on uh, probation or something like that, house arrest, something that's definitely not as as bad. You know, so Mm -hmm. that's just an example. We see a lot of cases of that. There are Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of cases in uh, in this country of that sort of stuff going on. Um, And we see that essentially black people are at a disadvantage in every sense. And uh, I I mentioned black people because this is the focus of this podcast, but the truth is just for everyone out there, minorities in general tend to have this exact same disadvantage as well. Uh, A lot of the statistics that we've looked up uh, not only mentioned black people, also Latinos and other minorities Mm -hmm. in them as well. So if you're interested in looking that stuff up, I highly recommend you do, you know? Uh, But essentially when it comes to the criminal justice system, black people are at a disadvantage in pretty much every way. They tend to get longer sentences for the same crime. They're more likely to get arrested in the first place and they're also more likely to get arrested over petty crime compared to white people you know and these are these are life-changing things you know if you go to if you go to prison you know for for doing something minor because that's the definition of a petty crime uh, something that's minor it's a minor offense a minor offense you know like that that can change your life that can change your uh, uh your job your if you can support a family stuff like that it can limit your ability to get a job and and that leads to uh almost a cyclical uh cyclical um cycle yeah well that Mm -hmm. leads to a cycle because if you can't find a job when you come out of prison Mm -hmm. There are not that many options for you to make money, so then you might be back to what you were put in prison. And right, you, sorry, you may go back to what 
you were doing before. You were yeah, doing before. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Essentially, you, you have to revert back to what you were doing before because that's all you know. And essentially, because you, you've committed a crime, because you've been in the prison systems, other places don't want to hire you. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is an ongoing problem. There's a lot of places that just don't want to hire uh, what you could call ex-convicts or, yeah. you know, people who have been released from the from the prison system. Yeah. Um, and it is a serious issue. Um, what I would like to also touch upon is this. Um it, it's a controversial topic, and just about everything we cover on this podcast is controversial, <laughs> you know? So, you know, we're, get used to it. But um, That's what we're here for. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, crime is crime. And I want to get your guys' opinions yeah. on this. Crime is crime. And I, I believe that people need to be arrested if they commit a crime. Mm-hmm. But um, there, there's definitely an issue when it comes to the amount of crime that is done by a certain ethnic community, you know, compared to another one. I think that's what I really want to get to. So yeah. scratch that. I don't really want you guys' opinions because I know we guys, uh, we agree on this. <laughs> but um, what I want to make, what I want to clarify to the audience is this. Crime is crime and people deserve to get punished for crimes. That is true. But people also have to understand, one, what causes crime to happen. Mm-hmm. Two, that for these crimes, even though it is crime, you see that black people are being arrested and incriminated so much more than white people for crimes. If white people are also doing the crimes, they should also be getting arrested and uh, charged for these things just as much as black people. Mm -hmm. And black people, I think, should be being charged less due to the fact that there is a stigma on that already. There's a bias in that in this mm-hmm. system already. They're targeted. Exactly. They're well, targeted. targeted. Exactly. So, like, uh, I don't want it to come off as a, as if I'm saying that white people and black people should be charged the same because uh, it, it sounds good, but it also sounds a little bit uh, unfair because at the end of the day, black people are, like you said, being targeted. So they should also be getting arrested less, you know, for like, these like, crimes. It, it should be in a perfect situation where it's just like it's corresponding to the objective fact that someone committed a crime right exactly just be fair if you commit a crime you get arrested if you don't then you don't yeah yeah and you know know, i I apologize to everyone out there if that seems a little bit confusing you know wording these sorts of things is not are not easy um but we do want to get this point across in in a clear way and what henry said is absolutely true you know the only time you should be getting arrested is if you committed a crime and it's the fact that you committed a crime. There is no, like, you're not, there's no incentive right. to push someone to say something that, that therefore, you know, justifies mm-hmm. arresting them or putting them in jail. And even deeper than that, you know, you can't, you shouldn't get arrested because you look like you could commit a crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or because of, you, I know you mentioned racial bias, you know, harassment is harassment. Yeah. There are people who are getting arrested and harassed based on the color of their skin, you know, the clothes they wear and the places they live. And it's unfair. Yeah, you, know, you, you can't you yeah. can't come into these places. Right. And, and these poor income communities where a, a lot of heavy policing does happen. Mm-hmm. You, you can't come in into these places. And because there's crime there, you assume everyone's a criminal. You can't do that. That's absolutely true. You know, and everyone's innocent until proven guilty. But the system really doesn't show that they're treated like criminals. And it's just unfair, frankly. I, I agree with you completely. And like that actually adds into the next point that I wanted to discuss. Right. Over policing. Uh, Over policing yeah. and stop and frisk as as a as a like past precedent for, for a police department, specifically the NYPD. Like right. our local Bloomberg. Like, Bloomberg and Giuliani before him and 
even in the 90s, like under uh, William Bratton, which is a name that I don't believe you guys know. Well, yeah, I've never no, heard that yeah, name no. before. So let me start with him. William Bratton, he was like the NYPD chief. And he stood by this theory, which is like, I, th- I believe it's a psychological theory called the broken windows theory. Oh, okay. right. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Like essentially the broken windows theory says that if you crack down, it, it doesn't say anything explicitly about cracking down. It says that in a society that has, that allows for petty crimes and like petty burglaries and essentially like an, like a, the thing that they were saying was like leaving broken windows around and like, like having to walk through streets that are like, for example, filled with broken windows or like you hear gunshots or whatever. Mm -hmm. The theory is that that leads to more serious crime. So then police chiefs like William Bratton took that as, well, if we police for these minute crimes first, then we'll be able to stop more, like more devastating crimes. Right. Um, George, I'd like to take a moment to try to like explain broken windows theory a little yeah. bit further. Yeah. Because I, I've read a little bit about this and I, I believe we've, we've been taught it at some point in I, high school. I think it happened. Maybe. Who I, knows? I, I, I know. I, I know. I took a psych it. class. And yeah. It was in there, you know, yes. yes. It's definitely from psychology. Um, I, I did take a psychology course this, yeah. you know, first semester. Um, by no means am I a psychologist. By no means do I know everything <laughs> about <yet>. psychology. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, however, this is something we covered. And I think this is something that, that should be further explained because exactly. it actually it makes sense. But you could also see how it could be stretched exactly. and extorted. Exactly. Uh, broken windows theories, essentially, like in a way, if I were to explain it in a way that people would understand it's like you know you know when you're walking through a neighborhood and you understand like you just know this like it's it's either dangerous you don't want to walk there at night mm-hmm. you know you don't want to be out there with with you know your fancy headphones or your really expensive jordans like you know like there it's essentially saying that in areas like this areas that have these broken windows these graffitied walls you know are more likely to have petty crime and from that point crime can Escalate to more serious crimes. Gotcha. Due to the fact that they have broken windows and graffitied walls and things like that, you know, and they're, and they're, um, I think another thing that they mentioned is like, um, if they're not very sanitary and if they're not very well taken care uh-huh. of in general, you know, like, so ultimately, broken windows theory is saying the less, uh, or I should say the not so taken care of neighborhoods are going to have. More crime. So what you're saying now yeah. is that uh, the ex-mayor of uh, New York City, William Bratton, essentially said, "We're going to tackle. Yeah. yeah, we're going to police these areas that have these broken windows and these graffiti and this graffiti walls, and we're going to make sure that we can tackle all the crime." But there's definitely a huge bias with this because now there are going to be poor income communities getting over policed just based on the fact that they're in poor conditions than these higher class neighborhoods exactly it's a flawed it's a flawed theory it makes sense because essentially it is true at the end of the day you do Mm -hmm. see higher rates in these communities that are poor off but that doesn't mean that 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 they were there because of what they've done and it also doesn't mean that like such a strict like overreaching police force 
in those neighborhoods is going to be a solution. It just sounds like an excuse to get into these neighborhoods. Yeah, for sure. Like, think about really why these neighborhoods are the way they are. They're not getting the resources they need. That's the whole reason they can't repair the window or repave the street. You know, that's the whole reason they can't, you know, repaint those walls and make them all nice again. That's why the train station, you know, smells and all that sort of stuff. It's not because they're criminals. It's because they're underfunded. Exactly. They're underfunded. Like I said, money makes this world go round. Actually, Henry said that. But, you know, (laughs) but it's true. You know, if you don't give these communities the money they need, the resources they need, essentially they're going to resort to crime. So broken windows theory, yes, it's true, but they're tackling it from the wrong angle. Exactly. They're saying, let's wait for the crime to happen and then police it instead of let's give these people the money to end the crime before it happens so that people don't have to resort to it in the first place. Exactly. You know? Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, Jordan. I really wanted to explain that to everyone out there because I think it's important. Yeah, no, I'm really glad, Oscar, that you like elaborated on it because I was really going off of what I remembered and the research that I did that you guys can like check out. But yeah, thanks for that insight and like yeah, that was yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, but so. let's get to stop and, stop and frisk because yeah. it's a very big and very controversial uh, policy uh, from the New York City Police Department. Why don't you talk about that? Exactly. Yeah, like stop and frisk stemmed from this um, from William Bratton um, really ascribing to broken windows theory, and it was like put in by Mayor's Giuliani, and then continued under Bloomberg. And actually, when Bloomberg was running for president, like 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 this past year, like. A lot of his messages of like mixed messages around it resurfaced. So right. anyway, um, it really it allows for police officers to it allowed for them to stop and search anyone due to reasonable suspicion, and inherently it, it allows them to judge the situa- judge the situation and use their bias. Mm-hmm. So like looking back on the statistics of that, eighty percent of the people stopped and then like frisked and like checked for weapons or drugs or whatever to stop in the middle of the street were minorities. So like right there, it, the, the goal and the result becomes apparently obvious. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like stop and frisk has been a very controversial thing for a very, very long time. Ever since it's come out, it's been controversial and yeah. it still is to this day. It was um, judged unconstitutional in, yep. in 2013. Mm-hmm. So like it's no longer really used, but Unfortunately, that statistic that I said about 80%, it really hasn't wavered since, especially like in New York City, for example, Mm -hmm. people that are still stopped, it it can't be under like a stop and frisk, like reasonable suspicion, Mm -hmm. but still the amount of stoppages still roughly is like different name, Mm -hmm. same goal, essentially. Ultimately, I, I stop and frisk was really out there. It really gave police like a very big leeway, a little bit. Dangerously, yeah, too much leeway. Um, So, in repealing it and getting rid of it, they were this bias in the way that it was represented through stop and frisk did stop. But there was already bias in the police system in the first place. And, you know, and we talked about that in police reform, how, like, there's not enough bias training and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, so ultimately, at the end of the day, of course, you're going to still stop majority minorities, you know, and all uh, essentially more black people, Hispanics, Latinos, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, so stop and frisk was a, a terrible, I think, uh, what would a policy, yeah, right? A, a terrible, terrible, terrible policy, policy right? Yeah, yeah, but at the so. end of the day, like getting rid of it didn't really get rid of the problem. Yeah, you no. know, and it, it it's not necessarily uh, directly related to uh, prisons and prison reform, which we'll get to later. But it it does have something to do with mass incarceration. Like, why do we see a lot of minorities in these prisons mm-hmm. for really really minute crimes? You know, mm-hmm. it's because these people look at someone as like, why are they walking so late at night? 
You know, like, yeah. why, why are they there? You yeah. know, that's why people now are saying, like, there, there are a lot of people out there who are like, why can't I jog in my own neighborhood? Why, like, why should I be afraid of that in the first place? Mm. You know, uh, there's, there's a lot of people. And this is where it all stems off from. The things exactly. like this. Mm-hmm. And, you These know? policies that give officers leeway to, and I'm just going to say, it, harass people, you know. Yeah. And I'm not saying all officers who, who conducted stop and frisk were doing it with the purpose of harassment. But a lot of them were, mm-hmm. you know. And Absolutely. It true. has to be noted. It has to be criticized. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now, um, Henry, we're going to talk... Talk about really controversial. Yeah, we're going to talk about a really controversial uh, issue, uh, the death penalty. And I know you have a little bit on that. So why don't we talk about that uh, a little bit more for us? Definitely. And before I uh, say anything, I just want to say that this is a very, very controversial. It's a very touchy subject for a lot of people. So I'm trying I'm going to give some facts and some information. But, uh, you know, this is dealing with people's lives. Yeah. Essentially. So I just want to preface that. Uh, currently, the death penalty is legal in 25 states, which is half of the states in the U.S. And uh, as of January 1st, 2020, there are currently 2,620 inmates that are on death row and 41 percent of those inmates are black. Despite these numbers, uh, there are people who are trying to, you know, enact changing and get more people out, because I, I do want to say that not everyone on death row are, are are guilty right well they were found guilty but not all of them committed the crimes that they were that they were put on death row for yeah and also it's like another thing to say is like it, it's hard to say how many because it, yeah, like, yeah. if we were to say like if we were to say like this many people in the prison system are guilty but have been con- uh, i'm sorry are innocent but have been convicted guilty then it'd be pretty easy for us to be like, all right, get them out. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, like, you know, if, if we knew how many people have been wrongly convicted, then it would be very easy to get them and, out. Exactly. And, and actually, um, I'm going to go into right now. There is a there is a lawyer named Brian Stevenson, and actually, there's he has a book named Just Mercy and a movie about uh, his story that I highly recommend. But I both I highly recommend. Uh, and Brian Stevenson actually uh, he started the Equal Justice Initiative, right, which is organization that provides you know defense for for inmates that are on death row uh primarily in the south who cannot afford to get the proper uh defense and when i say proper i I don't just mean uh you know state appointed because that that, that's not always the best defense uh especially in these situations that's true uh and i know we talked about we can't put a number on it but he's actually won five out of six cases that he presented to the Supreme Court. And he has also won over 135 reversals, uh, relief or releases from prison. Wow. So these are staggering numbers. Yeah. And uh, in the Equal Justice Initiative is still hard at work today. And they're doing some great things as far as getting people or, or getting innocent people out of death, uh, off of death row. Excuse me. That's- that's a, those are some staggering facts. That's a wow. good lawyer. Great lawyer. And, and the that. movie really goes into his... Pro- it's, a, it's a great movie. Isn't Michael B. Jordan the lawyer? Yeah, Michael B. Yeah. Jordan's the lawyer. Jamie Foxx is... Um, is the inmate, I believe. Is, is the inmate. Yeah. I, I can't remember his name, but... No, great movie. And it's very informative. And it shows a lot that I didn't know about, you know, inmates on uh, death row and different tactics used at the time. Wow. To, um, you know, different tactics used kind of 
Is it to intimidate them? To intimidate, yeah, I'm sorry. Gotcha. To, to intimidate witnesses and things like that. Right. It, it definitely gives you a look into the, the system. Right, yeah, for sure. And, you know, his work is so important, especially when you have, like, a record like that. Like, you've helped a, a lot of lives, you know? You've yeah. helped uh, save a lot of people from a life in prison and worse, in this case, you know, from, from being killed mm-hmm. legally, you know, yeah. by, by, the, by the government. Um, now... With all this terrible, you know, frankly saddening statistics and numbers, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's hard to see the good stuff, you know, Um, and we've said this several times, we don't want to, we don't like softening the blow, but at the end of the day, there is also some good stuff that has come out of this, there are also some good people out there doing good work, like this lawyer that you're talking about, you know, so, you know, we also want to talk about other people who have also taken the initiative to confront this system that is so broken and say, hey, you know what, like, let's, let's try to fix this. Henry, you have a little bit more on that and actually how celebrities have used their influence right, to right. help these people. Yeah. Um, so Meek Mill, which is a famous rapper, if, if you are familiar with him, uh, he and Jay-Z have worked uh, actively to gain support for prison reform. Uh, in January of 2019, they pledged $50 million towards prison reform. And in 2020, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, they donated over 100,000 masks to the prison system, to inmates in the prison system. Wow. Right? And Meek Mill has a very strong connection because um, I believe his case was about he popped a wheelie on his um, motorbike. And uh, he spent, I believe, around five months in the prison system. And he spent many, many more months and I believe years on probation. And I know that was a really big, uh, that, was, that was a really big thing because it was getting away with his work. He had to ask permission for certain things. Gotcha. So he felt very strongly. And also he, he saw the, the negative things going on on the inside firsthand. Right. So he became an ad, uh, advocate for prison reform and a, and a very important one. Uh, he and Jay-Z are two very influential people uh, in pop culture today. Yeah, so so sure. their work is doing a lot of good. And speaking of people who are very influential in pop culture, uh, Kim Kardashian uh, has done a lot over the last two years Mm -hmm. um, for the prison system. Uh, According to The New York Times, uh, she lobbied with President Trump. She spent time uh, on the phone with governors and legislators, and she also wrote letters in support of clemency positions. And she even paid legal uh, fees for people trying to get out of prison. She had a documentary come out on Oxygen called Kim Kardashian West, The Justice Project, uh, where she supports an early release of four people who were convicted in charge, uh, who were convicted on charges, including murder. Uh-huh. And uh, she is also currently working on becoming a lawyer, which is a very, 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 uh, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And, and, it, and it's really cool because she's a role model for so many people. And, and as far as the um, fashion world, the makeup world, right. uh, the model world, yeah. and to see her doing such such uh, good, so many good things in the political realm, mm-hmm. or I don't know how political this is, but well, like yeah, it's for social justice, for, for social justice, yeah, yeah and yeah. she's really using her platform to do a lot of good, yeah, and it, I think it, that's it can, an amazing thing. It can get political, but at the end of the day, she is helping a lot of people. In general, these are people, you know, yeah, like these are people with lives. People first. Yeah, exactly. There's people with lives, and I don't know how many, but I'm sure the majority of cases, these are people with families, you know, mm-hmm. and these are people who, uh, just like anyone else, uh, ha- have committed mistakes, you know, and 
in some cases haven't committed mistakes, right, you know, right. so that, that, that's the, the, the other part of it. But you know? regardless, everyone deserves a fair chance in the system and a fair chance is not always given. And I exactly. can't stress that enough. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so what, what, what these celebrities are doing and what, what these lawyers are doing is very important in just giving people a fair chance. There's nothing is guaranteed with this system, but some people have a better chance than others, you know, j- just based on their race, based on, you know, where they fall on the poverty line, you know, so what these celebrities are doing is, is really changing their lives and Definitely. saving them in some situations. But keep in mind, like, look at what it takes. It takes a celebrity, someone yeah. with a lot of influence and power to kind of speed this process up and get these people out of this system when they mm-hmm. were wrongfully convicted. And that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be the case that people have to hope for someone who is a quote unquote important or influential to mm-hmm. uh, get their, uh, you know, to, um, get their attention and to kind of take up their case and try mm-hmm. to get them out of there. Um, in a lot of cases, that's that's not, you know, we don't have a, a Kim Kardashian or right, Jay-Z, yeah. you know, like we don't have these people behind us, or I should say behind these, you know, uh, individual individuals, cases, you know, yeah. okay, individual mm-hmm. cases, right? I think that's where, you know, just using your platform, as these uh, big celebrities, um, all these people have millions of followers right. just by just by saying these names getting this information out there you know that does a lot in itself you know and, yeah yeah and, and i think to add on to that henry um it's really important that, that like celebrities are doing this as you're saying i think also to our listeners like whether it's on your instagram or whatever social media you have like the reason that this movement has been mainly on social media and, and people are talking about you know being a, a good ally and being and maintaining the momentum is that like this can't be something that's a trend this can't be something that's that you just get fatigued like oh all these people are posting all about black lives matter on on instagram all the time like people are using their platform as they should be if something if you're truly passionate about it and you truly care like really power to you because like celebrities have done it and really like if you have a thousand or close to a thousand people on you know, Instagram, for example, following you, you know, I, yeah, you just made me feel bad about my following, but that's, story, <laughs> you know, but um, George is absolutely right. At the end of the day, we may not have the influence, the money or the power that, you know, a lot of these celebrities have, but we do have a voice and we do have the power to in as, um, as a group make this change. Exactly. All of the major movements in our history have been done as a group. You know, we, we have seen people, uh, get together and they become a very powerful force, you know, something that that government kind of just has to deal with and they yeah. have to kind of like open their eyes and see what's wrong. And they're forced to deal with it. Exactly. Exactly. It's brought to their attention. Um, and, you know, let's let's talk about what the what this so-called group is talking about now. Yeah. You know, a, a lot a lot of them are calling for the. Abolish abolition. abolition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, the abolition of prisons, and um, just like when we talked about abolishing the police, it's a very big term. You know, it's a very big term and it has a lot of implications to our society. Um, but unlike uh, the abolition of police, mm-hmm. we haven't seen a lot of people talk about abolishing prisons. In well, fact, it's something that hasn't been mentioned nearly as much as uh, as uh, abolishing police. Or not hasn't mentioned as of late. You know, there have definitely yeah. conversations, but it's not as strong yeah, yeah. as the police. And not as much like research, I guess you could say has gone into it. Like we we could say with abolishing the police, you know, Camden, they abolished it for a little bit and rebuilt, you know, like mm-hmm. we we can't really say that 
people have talked about abolishing prisons. Yeah. In, in a large scale, it hasn't been yeah. truly done where things can be studied and learned from. Right. Ultimately, like abolishing prison, the prison system, I, at least the way I interpreted it from the stuff we've read, is it means to put in place like a rehabilitation like policies ultimately like uh systems that are meant to help people improve their lives instead of like canceling their lives and just putting them in what is essentially a cage for their for the rest of their lives so um it from what i've read it sounds pretty positive you know help people rebuild their lives and like change the way they're going and you know that that sort of stuff that that sounds pretty good yeah you know but at the end of the day like like i said a lot of people don't have that sort of choice they have to kind of turn to crime due to the fact that they are so poorly funded they have no help from from other resources you know um so what good does it do to be put in a system that's supposed to rehabilitate you quote unquote Mm -hmm. but then you go out there to that cruel world and that help is still not there right you know so uh we'll leave you with this Abolishing prisons, just like any other sort of abolishing, you know, like yeah. it, it has a lot of implications. And uh, due to the fact that it is a little bit uh, less mentioned, um, there's not a lot of information out there as far as like what it what it could be and what implications it could have for our society. Uh, but I highly recommend that we start talking about it and we start seeing, you know, what's convenient for us. What could what could these changes mean for us? And what does that mean for the future? Exactly, yeah. you know, and, and see whether we want to, you know, like 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 start starting the conversation with the big like buzzword of abolish prisons. You know, like whether that means like you were saying, Oscar, like re, like creating a new system about rehabilitation, or could we also like specify, you know, abolishing private prisons, right, mm, yeah. and ensuring that for profit businesses that, you know, like like they they benefit by having more people in cells, right, like reexamining that. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, and uh, also like we mentioned abolishing prisons, but that's not the only thing out there. Like there's prison reform as yeah, well. And th- yeah. that's that's the majority of the conversation yep. that we've seen, you know, a lot of prison reform, how we can change prisons. And I, I think that's a that's a, a good conversation to have as well. Yeah. But ultimately, that's what we recommend to our, our listeners. Have that conversation. See what's convenient. See what you think. Uh, and where do, you the, do the extra research. You know, exactly. it's very important because the penal system gets overlooked in, in society a lot, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. It's the ugly thing we kind of just don't want to, we don't want to acknowledge in our society. And we really have to look deeply into these systems, you know, and, and frankly, we we, we need to do a better job at bringing awareness to this issue. Yeah. And I think, I think if we're able to tackle this issue, if we're able to really examine how we treat two million people and how we let two million people be treated. Yep. It could really speak to something at the core of like our society. You right. know, it could really speak to like what we really want to stand for as a society. I absolutely agree. Me absolutely. Too. Well, once again, a very interesting topic, you know, it's, it's interesting, but important, you know, and in many cases, you know, it's serious yeah. and I'm glad we covered it today. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation as always. We're not experts. We can only offer our opinions and the facts we find online, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, mm-hmm. we, we do our best to be as transparent to you guys as we can, yeah. you know, but, um, uh, we hope that you understand and we hope that you are inspired to look for more information. Yeah. Look for more, for, for more information and have that conversation because it's so, so crucial. Because this is only one step forward. Exactly. The rest need to be taken. Yes. Yes. Please, yes. please be curious and take the other steps 
and you know just create your own opinions absolutely yeah. i hope you guys enjoyed our conversation and i hope you guys join us next time take care everyone the One Step Forward team puts a lot of effort into the credibility of our podcast. It is because of that that we want to share this information with you for further reading. The sources themselves will be posted on our Instagram account at O-N-E One Step Forward Podcast. Give us a follow for updates on new episodes, resources that we use, guest information, as well as social justice organizations involved in the current movement. Additionally, if you have any comments and concerns, you can also email us at one step forward podcast at gmail.com. No caps, no spaces. Feel free to reach out to us using either the email or the Instagram account. We would love to hear from you, uh, both your comments and your questions.